I've known Vincent Nakotra, Vincent and Gabrielle, for probably 15 or 16 years. I first met them on a Sunday morning when they walked through the door into a Sunday school class I was teaching on the Gospel of John. In they came and, like all first-timers, found their chair in the very back of the room. We met them after class and just found them to be a really delightful couple. The next memory I have really is a few months later, I'm not sure how many now, but myself and another elder went to visit them in their home that we might interview them for membership in Foothill Bible Church. And so we did, and, and they joined the church 15 years or so ago. A few months after that, Vincent came up to me and he asked me a question. He said, David, would you be willing to disciple me? And I said, sure, I'd like to do that. I said, let me ask you a question, though. What's the last book you've read, Vince? And he looked at me and he said, I don't read books. I've I've read Time magazine once in a while. And I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting. But the God did a real work of grace in this man's heart. And for a man who had never read a book in his life, I don't think, he took to reading the scriptures and theology like a duck takes to water. And he took off like a rocket in terms of his spiritual growth. It was a really delightful time that we were able to spend together over the course of more than a year. And during that time, God really formed our hearts together and knit them together in a bond that continues and has grown only sweeter even to this day. Over the years, Vincent's been involved in a number of teaching roles here among the body. He began teaching in children's ministries and proving himself faithful there, faithful in little things, faithful in much. And so he was given teaching opportunity among the high school and from there, eventually, among adult ministries. Along the way, God was refining him and, and growing him and strengthening him in the things of the Christian faith. It's been quite a providential journey as he has been carrying you along, my brother, here for more than a decade. That was a time I remember when you came to me and you asked me about seminary, that that the Lord, you thought, had begun to put it into your heart and mind to think about the possibility of actually going to seminary and, and studying and, and the original languages of Hebrew and Greek and theology and all that was involved in, in those things. And, and here was a guy who had never been able to graduate from college and yet now was talking about academic education at a graduate level in an intense environment. Do you remember those days? You do. <laughs> Yes, indeed. You'll never forget them. <laughs> well, we prayed together and we talked together and, and the Lord seemed to open the door for you to begin to pursue that path. It was a long path for you. There were many obstacles along the way, but God was faithful to you. Eventually, Vincent joined the elder council here at Foothill Bible Church, becoming one of the elders. And from there, the elders asked him to to resign his position in the healthcare industry and to join the staff as an associate pastor on a vocational basis. And, 
And so he, he took that major step as well. And, and then the Lord opened the door for you to attend seminary on a, on a full-time basis and carry on pastoral duties at the same time. And wow, those were days. Those were days. But God has seen you through, hasn't he? He's been faithful to you all the way to the end. And, and he's not done with you yet, my brother. At least I don't believe so. So in his providence, we arrive here this morning at this major milestone event in your life. Your public ordination to the gospel ministry. What a great and glorious day it is. And, and how delighted this body is to be able to share it with you and, and me as your friend and, and pastor to be here as well. And so, my brother, I'm preaching a sermon to you this morning, but, but it's for others as well. It, it's... There'll be a number of eye glances in your direction, so don't fall asleep on me now. Why don't everybody open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, there are Bibles in the pew rack in front of you, or if you're sitting on an aisle, reach under your seat, pull one of those out, and open it up to page 1189. 1189, you'll arrive at 1 Timothy Chapter 6. Timothy was Paul's young disciple and ministry companion for more than 15 years. He and the Apostle Paul were very, very close together in the work of the gospel. There was a bond of love and trust between those two men that exceeded, I think, any other bond that we can find outside of those in the gospels among the people of God. They were very close together. In fact, Paul had such confidence in Timothy that, that he could send Timothy on the most sensitive, on the most difficult ministry assignments and know that this man would not drop the ball, that he would, that he would see it through. He was Paul's trusted companion, his trusted ministry associate. In fact, Paul writes from a Roman jail during his first imprisonment there to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Don't turn there, just listen as I read. And he's speaking to the church at Philippi about Timothy. And it reveals Paul's heart about this young man. Paul says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. A few years later, Paul again writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy. It's now the end of Paul's life. He is in a Roman jail a second time, but this time his release will only come through the executioner's sword. Paul's life is soon to be poured out. And so he writes the final letter that we have from him in the New Testament. And he writes it to Timothy. 
And from his prison facing execution, he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. Because of my first defense, all deserted me. Timothy, come. Come before winter. Come. Before this, Paul had sent Timothy to the strategic church in Ephesus. A major trade city in the eastern edge of the Roman Empire. Modern day Turkey. He had sent Timothy there to pastor this important church, this key strategic location from which gospel proclamation had been going out and would continue to go out all over what's known as the ancient world Asia Minor, today Turkey. Who else could he send to the church at Ephesus? A church that was so important and yet was being racked by false teachers and heresies. Who else could he send but Timothy? And so he sends him there. And that's the letter we have before us, First Timothy. Written to him, Paul says, Timothy, I hope to come to you soon to help you in the process of straightening this church out. But in case I am delayed, Timothy, I write to you so one might know how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of the living God, the church, the pillar and support of the truth, First Timothy 3.15. He's writing to Timothy here. Because it's huge. It's important. Timothy, you can't mess this up. You've got to get this right. So he writes to him here, chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Let me just read the text for you. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of our God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. And let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but let them serve them all the more, because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. If anyone advocates a different doctrine... And does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. He is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And Amen. I've entitled this message, Man of God. Man of God. This morning, Vince, I want to remind you of three characteristics of a man of God. From verses just 11 and 12. We don't have time. Just verses 11 and 12. But three characteristics of a man of God that are essential for an effective and enduring ministry. They begin, number one, That a man of God flees from evil. A man of God flees from evil. It's interesting how Paul refers to Timothy here. And I'm in verse 11. Calls him a man of God. It's interesting to me because over in verse 20 in the same chapter, he uses his name. He says, oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. So it's not just... That he doesn't know his name or doesn't want to use his name. He, he is choosing a very important name for him at this critical juncture in the text. Oh, man of God. This is a biblical term that has tremendous significance. It's a very ancient term, really, among the believing peoples. It's a term that was first applied to Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 1. Subsequent to that, this title, Man of God, was applied to Samuel, the prophet. It was applied to David, the king. It was applied to Elijah. It was applied to Elisha and a handful of others. And all to whom it was applied, it it set them apart as, as servants and spokesmen for God. Man of God. When Timothy would read this letter from Paul and he would read that title, Paul addressing him, you, oh man of God, Timothy, his ears would open right up. He would realize the significance of Paul choosing this title to address him. He'd sit up and take notice. The word is used, by the way, only one other place in the New Testament. It's used over in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 17. And it's applied to Timothy again there. Where it speaks of the Scripture being 
capable of making you ready to be a man of God, equipping you for gospel ministry. And in fact, chapter 4, following right behind chapter 3, says, Therefore, preach the word, O man of God. O man of God. Now, is, is this only applicable to just those few individuals, only for those few prophets, only for Moses, only for David, only for Timothy? Does it have a wider application? What about the rest of us? Hundreds of us here this morning. Can we take anything from this title? And I think the answer is yes. By application, yes. Today's Father's Day. Dads, I hope you got your breakfast in bed like I did. Actually, that's not true. I should not have said that. I shouldn't say things in the pulpit that are not true. I did not get breakfast in bed. But I had an excellent breakfast at the kitchen table. How's that? I suppose I could have, I could have had it in bed, right? But I didn't want it there. I hate it when the crumbs get in the sheets. It's terrible. It's Father's Day. Oh, men of God. Oh, men of God. It's Father's Day. Yes, this term can be used for us. It can be used by application for us. If we will give ourselves to the task of knowing the Word of God and living the implications of the Word of God out among our families and our communities and our church, we too can be the men of God. So it's applicable for us too. It's fascinating to me again, verse 11 The contrast here in this verse. In the Greek, it actually begins, but you, man of God, flee from these things. There's a strong contrast that's going on here. Paul is reminding Timothy of the importance of of living out the Christian life. And he's drawing a sharp contrast with the false teachers that are all around him. Timothy, but you don't get involved in that kind of stuff. Flee from it, he says, verse 11. Flee from it. But what is it that Timothy's supposed to flee from specifically? What does Paul want Timothy to run away from? These things, verse 11. But flee from these things. What things? Well, if we let our eyes go back up in the context a little, we can figure it out what things Paul's talking about. I'll go as far as verse 3, so let us just go at least that far back. There, the things that Timothy is to run away from are, first, the different doctrines that are out there. Different doctrines. If anyone advocates, verse 3, a different doctrine, Timothy, run away from it. In the context here, the different doctrines specifically he's talking about is the relationship of slaves to their masters and how as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ we're to relate to those in authority over us in that social structure. Timothy, those who are advocating rebellion among the slavehood, you run away from them. It's a different doctrine. Run away from different doctrines, Vince. Don't entertain them. Don't don't try to... Noodle them out and figure what truth there might be in them. Just just run. Just turn your back and run. 
Run from divisiveness as well. Verses 4 and 5. Run from divisiveness. You know the telltale sign of a false teacher is their perverted desire to cause strife among the people of God. Do you know that? As you go through the Old and New Testament, that's one of the things that stands out as a, a mark of a false teacher is they like to sow discord among the brethren. They enjoy the argumentation, the, the setting of their opinion against others that they might create strife within the family of God. They like to foment things. Instead of enjoying the peace and the unity of the church brought about by the Holy Spirit of God who has made us one together, they, they like to tear it apart. They like to disrupt it. They like to sow seeds of discord. You know, God hates those who spread strife among brothers. Did you know that? It's not just that God hates the strife. God hates those who spread strife among brothers. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 19. It's a serious thing. Vince, run from it. Run from it, he says. Finally, these things, verses 6 through 10, include the idea of discontentment. Run from discontentment. It's a snare that has ruined many people's lives, Paul says. Many people have made shipwreck of their faith because they are discontent with what God has given them. They want more. They're seeking to, to squeeze out of this life all the stuff they can. You know, he who ends with the most toys wins, right? Wrong. Paul goes on to say how people have made a shipwreck of their life by their pursuit of worldly prosperity. As a pastor, you know, you know this. You've seen it. You've counseled people. Not to do it. My brother, I'm counseling you right here, right now from this text. Don't let it happen to you. There is no room in the pastoral ministry for a man of great appetite. One who cannot be content with what the Lord has given him. You will make shipwreck of yourself. If you pursue these things. Timothy, run! From what? From different doctrines, from divisiveness, from discontentment, Timothy, in your life. I remember some years ago when I was working in banking, I had the opportunity to tour a warehouse of a, of a steel distributor, a wholesaler. And in that warehouse, they had big coils of steel. You know, you see them going down the freeway, right on the back of a, of a tractor trailer. They might have two or three of these big coils of steel on there. And so I went to a warehouse where they had millions of dollars worth of inventory of coiled steel. And they, they would stack them high, three, four high. They would use skids, wooden, wooden skids on the bottom to hold the bottom ones in place. And then they would stack them on top of each other. And I remember walking walking through the warehouse and walking between the aisles of these things that are stacked up and you're looking really high and they're way taller than you are and they weigh many, many tons. And I remember saying to the warehouse manager, have any of these things ever fallen? And he looked at me and he kind of grinned. And he said, well, there was one morning I was here walking through the warehouse pretty much all by myself. And... I heard a groan and a creak and the pile shifted and one of the coils from the top kind of bounced and fell down to the floor. And when it hit the floor, it burst the bands that held it and it was like a spring and it began to uncoil. 
And I looked at him. And I said, well, what did you do? He looked at me right straight in the eye. Right straight in the eye. And he said, run! <laughs> he said, I started running and that thing was chasing me. And it's uncoiling and I'm running. And he said, I took her across that warehouse and there was an open door. And I went out through the door and that coil steel hit the cinder block wall next to the door. And it went right on through. I said, well, when did you stop running? He said, not for a long time. (laughs) Yeah, not for a long time. Brother, run. Paul telling Timothy, run. I'm passing it on to you. Run like crazy. Turn tail and run. Man of God flees from evil. Secondly, man of God follows after virtue. Verse 11, a man of God follows after virtue. By the way, the the two verbs here, flee and pursue, they're present tense verbs. They're continual action verbs. Keep fleeing, keep on fleeing. Follow after, pursue, and keep on pursuing. It's not just a one-time decision. It's an every moment, every day of your life decision. You need to be running in the right direction. So Paul lists some virtues for us here in verse 11. It's only a representative list, by the way. They're, you go to the different virtue lists in the New Testament, and they're not all the same. Paul just kind of picks and sorts and pulls them together. There are six of them here in verse 11. He's chosen the ones he has, I believe, because they're applicable to Timothy in the task in which he's involved. And I believe, Vince, they are very applicable to you in pastoral ministry. Six virtues, and they can be combined into couplets or pairs. So three pairs of two. The first couplet or pair of virtues are under the heading of what I call exemplary conduct. Exemplary conduct. A man of God follows after virtue through exemplary conduct. You man of God, chase after righteousness and godliness. First couplet. Righteousness and godliness. Very simply, righteousness here is the sense of of being upright in your conduct before a watching world. That is, when the world looks at you and they evaluate your life, which they are doing, that their conclusion is that you are following after the things of God. That is, what you say and what you do are the same. Righteousness. Beyond that, he says, your exemplary conduct is shown in your godliness. Godliness. And this speaks more directly about your obedience to God himself. Simply put, we could say righteousness is what your life is like horizontally. Godliness is what your life is like vertically before God. Are you obedient to God vertically? And are you obedient to God to the watching world on a horizontal level? Exemplary in your conduct. Beyond that, Paul says we are to be exemplary in our character. Faith and love, second couplet. We have an exemplary character, Vince, of Faith characterized by faith and love. Faith is our trust in God, simply put. It's our lives that are, that are characterized by a trust in God. That's our character. Beyond that, agape, love. That is that we have a love for the world, for people. Agape is a, is a self-sacrificing, giving kind of love, right? For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. It's a giving love. And so 
Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you're to have a trust in God and you're to have a giving life, faith and love. Exemplary in your character. Third couplet, exemplary in your commitment. You need to be exemplary in your commitment. You, man of God, pursue perseverance and gentleness. You see it? Verse 11. Perseverance and gentleness. The idea behind the word perseverance is one who holds up under trials. One who holds up under trials. As a pastor, you need to be able to go the distance. You need to be able to run the race. You need to have endurance. You know, you can't be dropping out along the way when it gets a little bit difficult. You need to, you need to go for it. There are going to be a lot of disappointments. There are going to be a lot of setbacks. A lot of discouragements. But you cannot give up. You must continue in the race. You must persevere in the race. Remember the days or the day when we found you lying flat on your back in the men's room? Kind of half in and half out in the midst of an acute attack of kidney stones, right? That was a difficult period in your life. That was a great setback time. But you showed perseverance. The Lord worked through you. He extended your grace to you. And He saw you through. A man of perseverance. You know, ministry is no place for quitters. You know that, right? It's no place for quitters. But beyond that, Vince Paul tells Timothy, you have to have gentleness. Along with the perseverance, there has to be gentleness. Not only does the pastor have to endure and not waver, but he can't approach the ministry in a proud, arrogant, swaggering kind of fashion. God is opposed to the proud, actively opposed to the proud, right? But he gives grace to the who? To the humble. He gives grace to the humble, James 4, 6. So our approach to people has to be an approach of gentleness. This is a really fascinating word. We could preach a whole sermon on gentleness. Basic idea is, is strength under control. Jesus is spoken of as gentle, or as the old King James calls it, meek. It's the same word here. Meek. Strength under control. You know, there's no quicker way to destroy your ministry than to come at it with arrogance. You need to be gentle with the people of God. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, and he says, hey, our approach there in Thessalonica is that we were gentle like a mother among you, and we were like a father in the sense that we were encouraging to you. That's pastoral ministry. You need to follow after these virtues. You need to flee from evil. You need to follow after virtues. And third, and finally, a man of God fights for the gospel. A man of God fights for the gospel, verse 12. Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. This word translated here, fight, is a fabulous word. Agonizomai is the Greek word. 
from which we get the English word agony, agony. It speaks of struggle. It speaks of strain. It, it speaks of every nerve and nerve and fiber in your body being stretched out for the prize. It's, it may be a military term, but it's probably an athletic term. It probably comes from the games, maybe running or wrestling or even boxing. Contend for the faith is that idea. To contend. Paul tells Timothy here, and again, a present tense verb, agonizomai, present tense, it's a continual action verb here. You are to fight, you are to contend, you are to strain, you are to struggle, and you are to keep on contending the good fight of faith, of the faith. It's a reference to the gospel. We don't have time to develop it. Just take my word for it. It's a reference to the gospel. The faith, once for all, delivered to the saints, Jude 3. He's talking about the gospel. He's saying, Timothy, you need to be engaged all the time, engaged in a public defense of the gospel. A public defense of the gospel. You need to contend for it. Vince, I I don't have to remind you the gospel is under attack, do I? Constantly under attack. And you know, the attack doesn't come from the outside so much as it comes from inside the church. Acts chapter 20, Paul warns the Ephesian elders, listen, the wolves will rise up from the inside and seek to tear the, the sheep. The attack upon the gospel arises from inside the church. It arises from preachers and from, from seminary professors and Bible teachers who are, want to be novel. They've, un, they've uncoupled themselves from the inerrant word of God and they begin to become novel. They begin to engage in intellectual speculation and they begin to be carried away by every wind and wave of doctrine. But not you, Timothy. You don't cut yourself loose from the word of God. You contend for the faith. Once for all, deliver to the saints. First Timothy 4.16 Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, right? For everyone who will believe. We, need, we cannot forget that. I don't care what books are out there. I don't care what church growth strategies are out there. I don't care what kind of guru we see on the Internet saying this and saying that. You contend for the faith. You contend for the faith. Publicly. Secondly, the man of God fights for the gospel personally. Personally. Look at the second half of verse 12. Timothy, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It's an interesting statement. Timothy was called to eternal life by the sovereign will of God. He was called to it by God. That's not disputable. But that secret call that God uses when he summons a dead sinner to life is revealed by their public testimony and affirmation of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The secret work of God is made public through the mouth. Through the mouth. And so he says to Timothy here, look again at the verse, you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the words of Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in 
righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. It is a baptismal testimony, I think he's talking about here. He's saying, Timothy, at your baptism, you made public your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The secret call of God and his grace in you became public for all to see. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. When he's talking here about eternal life, he's not talking about duration. He's not talking about life that never ends. It just goes on and on and on. He's talking about a quality of life. It is not duration. It is quality that he speaks of here when he speaks of eternal life. He's talking about the life of the age to come, the life of God who inhabits his kingdom and who will bring it to this earth. That is the eternal life, Timothy, you are to grab hold of. You are to hang on to. If I can put it this way, he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, take care of the needs of your own soul. Take care of the needs of your own soul. Grab onto it. Hang onto it. Hold onto it. Do not lose your own spiritual life in the midst of your pastoral ministries. The life of the pastor is a life of service. It's about giving to people. It's about Bible studies. It's about preaching. It's about teaching. It's about meeting and counseling and discipling. It's about late nights. It's about early mornings. It's about hospital calls in the middle of the night. All of it goes on. It's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week occupation. Isn't that true? And my brother, in the middle of it all, you can go so very terribly dry. You know, Satan has painted a bullseye on you. Both you and your family. If he can bring down the elders, he can bring down the church. You're a high value target. And in the midst of all your ministry activity, you can forget about your own soul. That you're a man. You're just a man and nothing more. You are a sinner. You are a sinner saved by grace. You are in process of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. You need the grace of God as much as every other person. And it's so easy to forget that. It's so easy to begin to think you have to be the Bible answer man. You've always got the answer. You're always right on point. You're the guy. Well, Timothy, you're not the guy. You're not above this. You're not beyond this. You can be hollow on the inside. If you're not careful. Timothy, grab hold of it. Hang on to it. Do not let it go. You're struggling with your own soul. That you might know the fullness of the life to come. Do it. Do it. It's the only sanity you have in all of this. Paul could write himself in 2 Timothy, the end of it all. Inscription that, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful it could be on the grave of every single one of us. He writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Oh, Vince, may God grant you grace that that can be the final testimony of your life too.
Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, it is by grace from first to last. You have called us by your grace, regenerating our cold, dead hearts. We who had no interest in you, we who the scripture said was at enmity with you, hostile to you and unable and unwilling to obey your commands. Worthy only to receive your righteous retribution. And yet for your glory and your glory alone, you reach out to us through the gift of eternal life purchased by your son, the Lord Jesus Christ whose death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf has assuaged the wrath of God. He has, he has drunk the cup of the wrath of God to the dregs. He has emptied it on our behalf. In your grace, our Father, you have wrapped us in the robe of His perfect righteousness, an imputed righteousness, not our own, an alien righteousness, a righteousness of God himself given to us by faith. This is our inheritance among the saints. Our Father, in your good and mysterious providence, you also call out and set apart certain men for yourself. Not because they are any better than anyone else. Not, Lord, because they have more potential than others. Not because you look down the corridors of time and say, wow, that would be a good one to have on my team. Oh, no, Lord. You reach out and you choose a man. A son of Adam with feet of clay. And you set him in a place. And you put into his mouth the oracles of the living God. A son of Adam with feet of clay whose mouth speaks forth the riches of God. O Lord, who is adequate for such a task? O Lord, we are dependent on your grace. From beginning to end, every one of our days, your grace sustains us. And I pray for my Brother and my friend, Vincent Charles Nakotra, that you would magnify your grace in his life. Oh, Lord, you have done a mighty work that all can see. Oh, Lord, never leave him. Oh, Lord, not for a moment forsake him. Continue to uphold him. And not for his glory but for yours. Use this man. Use him up. Expend him for the greatness of the kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.